Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hello, Gavin. Good evening. You can hear in Gavin's voice. He's already eager to get out of the studio today, so uh, we'll just charge through all these stories. Also joining us, we have political analyst and frequent ICRT contributor, Ross Feingold. Hello, Ross. Good evening. He's a little bit more eager to be here. I can uh, appreciate that. And Skyping it in from the San Francisco Bay Area, we've got another longtime contributor, Che Ting Ye of Katagalan Media. Che Ting, good I to have you. I were there in person. On the show today, we're going to get your blood boiling with a rousing conversation on proposals to reform Taiwan's top judicial court. I can hear all the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is the sound of a, of a thousand millennial college kids canceling their spring break plans uh, so that they can listen in. Uh, but no, it's like important and junk. It's uh, actually prompted one KMT legislator to compare President Tsai to Hitler. Oh, not again with the Nazi comparisons <laughs> in Taiwan. So come on, everybody. There's something there. Stay tuned in for that. Uh, then we'll move on to cross-strait tensions as Taiwan continues to wait for that invitation from the World Health Organization for this year's World Health Assembly. Uh, many worry that souring cross-strait relations and pressure from China are to blame for the invitation's delay. Then in the second half, you got dioxin in my eggs. You got eggs in my dioxin. No, it's not the best new flavor mashup since Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's Taiwan's newest tainted food scare. Uh, but maybe not quite as big a deal as we thought it might be a week ago. And Taiwan is once again stiffening its DUI laws, now with a penalty that would force repeat offenders to get a label identifying them on their license plate. We'll look at whether or not the public shaming method might just help keep more drunks off the road. But first, uh, we're going to talk about the issue that got Taiwan's legislators so worked up this week, they tossed their beverages at one another both water and coffee. Uh, And that issue is infrastructure spending. Another sexy topic right there. Uh, The specific infrastructure spending that threw the legislative yuan into chaos this Wednesday would be the executive yuan's forward-looking infrastructure development program, a proposal that would see nearly 900 billion NT spent over eight years on infrastructure projects across Taiwan. Uh, So a lot in there, Gavin. Uh, What happened Wednesday? There was some contretemps in the legislature when lawmakers... It was a joint committee meeting, so it wasn't one legislative committee. It was several legislative committees, and they had a joint meeting in a big meeting room. Obviously a bigger meeting room than a regular committee meeting. So more to to break up there, really. Mm -hmm. And a couple of um, opposition lawmakers decided to vent their anger on some defenseless tables, which they did do. They also vented their anger by throwing their tea and whatever beverages they were drinking over certain people. And it all ended up in a bit of a pushing and a shoving session. There we go. This was all about a budget, a special budget. This isn't a regular budget. This is a special budget of a total of 882.49 billion new Taiwan dollars for, as Keith said, the forward-looking infrastructure project. It's a big chunk of change. Uh, what is different, though, this, this budget is a special budget, like I said, and it's an additional budget. And what the problem is, the government ne- the government say they want this budget for the infrastructure project but it's actually way bigger than any budget they would normally be allocated for 
projects. So and it would add more to the debt than they're allowed to do it normally. Add, it would add a lot more to the debt. But, of course, the government has said, basically, the infrastructure projects will create thousands of new jobs. And I believe they've even said that it'll bring in 700 billion NT into the economy over a certain eight-year period of time. So that's the arguments for it. The KMT, on the other hand, has an awful lot of arguments against it. Yeah, Keith, the KMT doesn't like it because, of course, the KMT says that the government should um, basically... Look, re-review the infrastructure project statute, which is the statute calling for this money, because apparently the KMT says it must not be forcibly sent to any legislative committee for any voting or a review in its current state, because the the statute that the government have written needs to go undergo revisions. Yeah, because they, they don't like the fact that the the proposal. I will allow the government to raise debts mm-hmm. because of this forward-thinking infrastructure project plan. Yeah. And there'll be no restrictions. The way it's set now, there'll be no restrictions imposed on the Public Debt Act. Right. The KMT say this is not good. The restrictions have to be set and the whole thing has to be rewritten with bits in the contract about stamping on public debt. Right. Probably the, the broadest headline criticism that we could make would be just that it has not undergone sufficient review. There hasn't been enough thought about exactly how this infrastructure money is going to be spent. Uh, in particular, there's been an awful lot of criticism of the plans to funnel this money into light rail projects. A lot of Half, people- apparently. Mm-hmm. $400 billion of the $800 billion is going on railway and infrastructure projects related to light rail and MRT and regular trains. Right, and this has made a lot of people question, does Taiwan really need more light rail? Is that the best way to improve its transportation infrastructure? Folks, uh, a friend of mine in Shinju in particular hates this idea. Basically, the point uh, locals are making there is that the streets are already so busy uh, and so small, really, why would you want to add more traffic, more crossings that would slow things up even more? Wouldn't buses, for example, uh, make more sense? So where things stand now, there's going to be another meeting set for this on Monday. So while I guess technically it did pass on Wednesday from the committee review, they're actually returning it to more review uh, on Monday, and the KMT has basically signed on to that. So that's where we're left uh, for now. Uh, Ross, this is a pretty interesting way for a bill to get reviewed. That's right. So we're going to have a (laughs) do-over next week because of, uh, frankly, and and, and you identified this issue, it was the speed by which the committees uh, reviewed and passed the legislation last uh, within the last few days and, and this has caused a lot of controversy not not just with the KMT who who opposed it in part simply because it's a proposal of, of the DPP so of course the KMT is going to find reasons to oppose it uh, but but there's been civil society public media uh, disappointment with the speed by which the K, the DPP legislative leaders uh, pushed this through and, and Given the large amount of money that's proposed to be spent, as well as the types of projects that would be funded, as Gavin identified, both of those are a concern, the, the, the amount of money and the types of projects. And, and when you combine that with the speed by which this legislation raced through the committee, uh, there, there's legitimate concerns. Right? And this is exactly the kind of thing that opponents of the services agreement three years ago were angry at the KMT, that they sped through uh, something of extraordinary national importance without giving the public, civil society, uh, opposition at the time, the DPP legislators, an opportunity to examine what they were about to sign off on. And, and uh, it's it's interesting that now that the DPP is in governance and the KMT is in, in opposition, we've now switched, switched positions with the KMT saying, no, you can't 
pass something so quickly. And the DPP saying, oh, it's really important for the country and for the economy. We need to do this. Uh, so, Ting, how about you jump in here either on the procedural point or on the policy point, whichever whichever you got more on? So I think I'll comment a little bit more on the policy point. Um, I think one of the biggest issues that I see with this plan is there is no central sort of priority or strategy as to why we are spending the money in the way we are, right? Um, I have it on um, a source that um, the plan was basically put together at a think tank by um, you know, junior researchers, and then basically the plan went through the executive yuan and is now at the legislative yuan pretty much intact. So I don't know if there's any sort of actual forward-looking strategy that went into the the plan, like why are we spending almost half the money on rail? Okay, well, give me a reason why. Like, What is it that Taiwan is trying to accomplish? What is the vision that um, the government is trying to you know, take Taiwan in in the next you know, five, ten years. Um, you know, I, I don't really see a logic behind the proposal. Forward-looking is in the name, thing. man. What do you want? Hey, the government have yeah, said... Yeah, exactly. The, the government, this is the premier earlier this year, said that basically this forward-thinking development plan um, is expected to lead to 1.77 trillion NT in private sector investment and add 0.7% to Taiwan's GDP growth each year during the eight-year period in which the infrastructure plan is carried out. Well, the previous government uh, under mine, Joe, also made very large infrastructure investments with rosy predictions of the contribution to economic growth. And often the, these things don't come to fruition uh, for a variety of factors, some of which are external, the, the global economy. Uh, but but we should not rely on the amount of economic growth and, and the tax revenue that would be generated uh, as being necessarily able to pay for this. Uh, so actually, this might just be what we call in America, at least a make work proposal, right? It's going to put uh, workers um, to work building the infrastructure. It'll give uh, contracts to infrastructure companies generally, which are domestic. They're, they're not a lot of foreign players that get involved in building this kind of infrastructure here in Taiwan. Um, so it's it's just a, a way to inflate the economy. We really should call it what it is. And even President Tsai was critical of her team in recent days, saying you you did not do a good job of explaining this to the public. Uh, Ting, what do you make of that? I mean, obviously, you Ketagala Media focuses a lot on startups and the potential for innovative ideas. This sort of scheme is, I mean, even if you don't take Ross's view that it's just a way to funnel money and sprinkle it about Taiwan, uh, even the most charitable view certainly wouldn't see it as innovative. Uh, do you think that this sort of spending is uh, what Taiwan's economy needs to grow? If it were up to me, I would rather see more money being put into funds, um, to either you know, low-cost low cost loans or grants or um, you know, investment into new startups or new companies doing innovative things. Um, I would rather see the money go into sort of more software or more intangible things like education. Um, you know, I, I think, yes, it would be nice to theoretically say, okay, we are going to build all these, you know, new infrastructure, you know, transportation or, you know, these, these things. But I just, I mean, it, it just, it just seems to me that um, it's just, the the answer to these, you know, what was government going to do to boost the economy? Well, let's build some, you know, let's build a few more things. I mean, Taiwan 
has been known, you know, people talk about these, you know, like, uh, you know, mosquito, you know, halls, right? Basically, governments, you know, local to national built these, you know, great looking buildings and, and infrastructure, and then basically nobody uses them. So, you know, I think, yeah, I think I would rather see the money being put to something else, um, if we're, especially if we're going to raise the debt and then have the younger generation pay for it down the road. Here's a novel idea, Gavin. You're, you're you know a bit about defense. Maybe the money should be spent on defense. They've got to find someone to send the stuff first, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they can they can make it their own. That's that's Could what we've do. been hearing. Could do. That's Go what on. we've been hearing. Anywho. Monday is the day to look forward to this. We'll see if uh, we can get through a committee meeting without any tossed beverages or uh, shoving matches. Lots to look forward to, but uh, we're going to move on to our next story for the show. Up next, well, we're going to go from one hot-button issue to the next. Uh, this week, we got new proposal from the Preparatory Committee for the National Congress on Judicial Reform. I think if this episode could be distilled into one image, it would probably be a pile of napping manila envelopes. Uh, but some folks are getting pretty fired up over these changes. Uh, like I said in the intro, the proposals earned President high comparisons with Hitler. Uh, so, Gavin, uh, let's just start out with what the proposals are actually made up of. What's uh, what's changing here? There's several proposals, and these, this this proposal was put forward and voted on on Monday of this week, mm-hmm. basically at a panel session of the Judicial Reform National Conference, which was organised by the Presidential Office. This has been ongoing for a while. We've discussed it on the show before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just part of President Tsai's broad promise to reform the judiciary. Judicial reform. It mm-hmm. comes under the judicial reform thing. And now, of the 18 members present at the session on Monday, 16 voted to pass a reform program proposed by the Judicial UN, which concerned the number of judges serving on the Supreme Court and also on the Supreme Administrative Court, and also a motion concerning how the judges will be selected and appointed. Mm-hmm. Now, according to the panel, the plan will be completed over the next five years. And I'm quoting this one, transforming the top-heavy nature of the current system into a more balanced pyramid-like structure. Right. So let's let's kind of separate this into the two broad changes that we're talking about here. The pyramid-like structure, what we're talking about there, is there will be fewer judges at the very highest level. So it gives that, like, the pointy shape. And then the other change would be how those judges are selected. Both of those things are being changed. Right, yeah. And now let's begin at the top. Okay. Or the bottom depending on what way up the pyramid is, of course. We need to get our, our, our geometry lesson yeah. before we... <laughs> anyway, the number of judges in the Supreme Court will be cut to only 14, and that of the Supreme Administrative Court will be slashed to seven in the coming five days. Five years. Five years, sorry. That was wishful thinking, wasn't it? Eh? <laughs> well, it was some, some period of time. Sorry, Gavin, justice does not operate that quickly. Hey, the Punisher operates that quickly, and I like the Punisher. Well, here, here's part of the problem with the proposal, though. Regardless of how, how the judges are selected, if, if the number of justices available on either the Supreme Court or the Supreme Administrative Court is dramatically reduced, as this proposal seeks to do, there, there would need to be a concurrent change in the ability of litigants to appeal cases. Now, um, as many of the listeners would know, under Taiwan's legal system, the ability to appeal your case, whether it's a criminal case 
or, or a civil dispute, like a commercial contract dispute, is quite broad, uh, unlike in places such as the United States, where the barrier to appeal a case when you lose is much higher than it is in Taiwan. So given that legally litigants have a very broad right of appeal, if the number of judges is going to be reduced, there would need to be a reduction in, or changes to the ability or the right to appeal. Otherwise, this reduced number of judges in the appellate courts, where the Supreme Court is an appellate court, it's not a trial court, uh, they, they will be overwhelmed with hearing the quantity of appeals that come through the system. Yeah, you've got to go ahead. In fact, when if if and when they do repeal the number of judges on these two courts... There'll be 21, like I said, 14 and 7. Now, there's 94 at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a huge they, change. They, they, hear, a huge they, hear, change. they hear a lot of cases yeah, because yeah. of this broad right of appeal. Uh, uh, Gavin, if we get into a, a fisticuffs during the radio show and we wind up suing each other, we'll probably have broad rights of appeal. Um, and, and the case will go on for many years, as, again, the listeners might know from reading about court cases in Taiwan, um, especially the more notable cases involving corruption or commercial disputes involving large amounts of money. These cases go on five, seven, ten years because of the broad rights of appeal. So there need to be judges who hear these broad rights of appeal. So doing away with the judges, you got to do away with the rights of appeal as well. I think Gavin's a little cranky today, so I wouldn't put any thoughts in his head like that. Punisher! <laughs> my favorite cartoon character. We already, see, we already see the line of thinking that he's on. It's dangerous. Let's uh, Okay, so that is, uh, broadly speaking, the issue of the number of justices. That's one of the things that's going to be changed. The other proposal that they're talking about is how these justices are selected. And this idea gets back to the notion that right now, the Judicial UN is mostly sort of a self-selected organization. It's a, a branch of government that mostly is adherent only to itself. And the the issue that people see there is that this lack of broader accountability means that you well we get this term dinosaur judges. We get these judges with uh, attitudes from bygone eras and are, are not totally in line with uh, Taiwan at Conservatives. Large. Conservatives. Yeah, we could put it that way. That's an so, easier so, way to put it. So, Gavin, uh, help us uh, figure out what exactly they're talking about changing here. Right. Now, in terms of the selection of the court judges, the Judicial UN will first recommend a list of 63 candidates. Basically, that's 63. They only need 21, so they start with 63. The list will then be handed over to a screening committee, which will take the 63 and whittle them down to 42. Mm-hmm. So we've got 42. We've still got double the amount. Where did they come up with these numbers? It's like bingo, isn't it? <laughs> All the fours, 44. Here we there go. we go. Anyway, the president will, will directly be able to select two of the final 21 judges. Okay. Well, since the president is is inherently political, how how, how does this proposal eliminate the concern that that there's a, a political flavor to the judges, right? So, as you said, Keith, judges were, were trained under a system that was created when when Taiwan was was a, a the, the party state dictatorship of the Kuomintang, and it, it influences how judges approach going about justice, and that that's a long running concern, often debated here in Taiwan society. So instead, we'll. we'll now hand this over to someone who's inherently partisan and political because they, the president runs as the uh, member of a political party usually, and that's how they, they get elected and they have the support of a, a whole political apparatus. So uh, I don't see how this proposal eliminates the concern. Right. But, and that, well, but apparently the screening committee will be composed of legal and professional experts, including lawmakers, judges, 
prosecutors, lawyers, and scholars. There you go. That's simple enough. Look at this uh, simple system that they came up with. So they, didn't and that's... Pick, they didn't pick bean men. <laughs> yeah, and uh, none of these people presumably would work for Tsai Ing-wen or the DPP, presumably, who knows? Well, there'd well, be legislators on the committee, and, would, and, the com- yeah. and the president's going to appoint the committee. I mean, there'd be legal so. and professional experts and lawmakers, judges, okay, prosecutors, but legal and professional experts, I wonder how many of them will have worked on some think tank before. Mm-hmm. That was supported by at least somebody. So that is where we get into the Hitler remarks. The criticism that we're seeing. <laughs> hey, it's a thing that was said. I can quote it. Sorry, Ross. Well, just uh, as uh, as uh, some of the listeners may know, I, I do have a leadership position in the Jewish community of Taiwan, and and we are constantly frustrated by the never-ending references and comparisons in Taiwan society that somebody is a Nazi or somebody's doing something like Hitler. Uh, it's, it's okay. It's, the short, and, and, it's okay. And, the Trump administration said the other week that apparently Hitler didn't use gas. And this, hear that news. This, hear this, that news. This also, uh, this past week was also a, a Holocaust Memorial Day. Mm. Um, so coming in the week of a Holocaust Memorial Day, it's even more hurtful. All right, so we will do away with that verbiage and instead get to the heart of the critique, which is that uh, this is seen as a move by the Thai administration to increase her presidential powers, could be seen as a move towards dictatorship, inching dictatorship. Uh, oh, don't they pick the Supreme Court in America? Doesn't the president pick it? Shh, I'm sorry. Shh, shh. Not exactly the example that you would necessarily want to emulate at the moment. Ting. You're coming at us from America. So uh, what do you see in this whole mix? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not like we are not without, you know, it's not like we have no controversy over our Supreme Court or our the highest court of the land um, you know, here in America, right? So um, I, I think the, the, the crux of the problem is that in Taiwan, the system was based on continental European law, which is... Um, also primarily parliamentary in nature um, with their political system, whereas in the United States, um, the separation of powers works a little differently, right? So in Taiwan, um, the president does not have or you know, hasn't had the power to shape the judiciary like the way the um, American presidents do. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's, just a, it's, it's just because in Taiwan the political system is moving inching towards the presidential system. So, yes, it does make sense to give the president some power or some say in the um, in the judiciary to be sort of a check um, and balance on the judiciary. But on the same time, you also, um, in my opinion, you also need the, the legislature to be involved with that process as well. Right. And so I think the um, the sort of pull and push and pull factor here is always well you at the same time, you want judges to be accountable to public opinion in some way, right? Or to at least be, um, you know, kind of go along with the times, right? To be cognizant of what's going on in the society. Yet, you also don't want judges to be so politically influenced um, and have these conflicts of interest that um, essentially the results are um, basically trial by populism or trial by public sentiment. Right, and so how do you, where do you draw the line? Where do you keep that balance? I think is um, a very important question here. And um, you know, as Ross said, you know, how do we ensure that it doesn't swing the other way, where um, the president, whether that's a DPP president now or a KMT president later or some other party's president, 
won't then basically get into a nasty political fight over the judiciary, just like the way, you know, just like we witnessed in the United States last month over um, the nomination of the uh, the last um, Supreme Court justice that we have here. Very quickly, before we wrap this one up, just uh, Ross may have already made this point, but just to hit it again uh, to clarify, though we are calling it the Supreme Court here, it's obviously different from the American case in that this one is handling civil and criminal cases. This is not the it, this is not analogous to the American Supreme Court in 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 that way. Well, it, it, it's uh, it's only partially analogous because the Supreme Court in the United States will hear appeals from uh, both civil cases, criminal cases, whether it's constitutional law issues, interpretation of a statute passed by Congress. So you're looking at the entire length of of the judicial issues that might come up through the federal courts or sometimes the state courts, Uh, whereas in Taiwan, there is something called the constitutional court, which we're not discussing with regard to this proposal. And that constitutional court, which is where, for example, the current uh, case over marriage equality is being heard because it's it's been brought to the constitutional court as a as a matter of interpreting the rights of LGBT people to to marry. Uh, So the constitutional court only hears cases that require interpretation of the Constitution and constitutional rights, whereas you're, you're correct. We're, we're talking about the Supreme Court or the Supreme Administrative Court, which hears appeals that come up through the court system, which could be either uh, your basic civil or criminal cases. So all those millennials that skipped out on their spring break to continue listening to this show, I mean, we delivered. Listen, all, all those hot takes on Supreme Court nuances in Taiwan's uh, civil system. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. But we're going to move on past that to our final story for the first half of the show. And turning our attention now to cross-strait relations. Taiwan's admittance to an important international medical conference is once again in question. And many believe pressure from China could be to blame. We're talking about here the World Health Assembly, which Taiwan has attended with observer status for the past eight years. But for some reason, that invitation got lost in the mail this year, at least so far. Kind of had a similar tense waiting period last year, but it was uh, eventually resolved. We can maybe touch on that history in a second. Just yesterday, though, interestingly enough, adding another twist to this story, President Tsai Ing-wen went on the offensive on this issue. You know, like, as offensive as Tsai ever gets. Uh, in an exclusive interview uh, with Reuters. Uh, so, Gavin, you can just uh, jump into this story wherever you want. Yeah, like you said, Keith, Taiwan has yet to receive its invite to this year's World Health Assembly in Geneva, and that takes place from May the 22nd through May the 31st. Apparently, they're saying that the deadline for online registration for this year's WHA session is May the 8th. Which is odd, considering this this letter is sent to government. So basically they send a letter and some bloke in some government office logs on and types his little information on and goes, Send! Bing! And it goes, yeah? Mm -hmm. That's a bit odd. That did throw me, but never mind, I digress. Anyway, yes, Tsai Ing-wen said on Thursday, yes, Thursday in her interview with Reuters, that she believes the issue of whether Taiwan will be able to attend this year's World Health Assembly is a key indicator in the development of cross-strait relations. This, of course, all stems from the fact that reports and several other people and individuals and media outlets have claimed that China is trying to put the kibosh on Taiwan's attending the event in Geneva this year, and if it does allow Taiwan to attend, it's going to insist that Taiwan's attendance 
be tied to the one China principle and cross-strait negotiations. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Tsai told Reuters that although China is trying to limit Taiwan's international participation in the WHA and other international groups, she said that it's important that Taiwan participate in the next session of the World Health Organization's governing body in the interests of people's health. There you go. She also said that Beijing should adopt a new way of thinking. She did, because she also said that China's leadership should avoid any policies that would be counterproductive to the development of cross-strait ties. Okay. A couple of other quick developments that we uh, should run through this week. The uh, American Institute in Taiwan Chairman James Moriarty weighed in briefly on this subject as well earlier. Yeah, he said that the United States has welcomed Taiwan's participation in the WHA as an observer over the past eight years and looks forward to Taiwan's continued participation in the meeting. The challenge right now is this is now a multi-layered problem. So as Gavin discussed, China wants Taiwan to adhere to a one-China policy, probably reiterate support for the 1992 consensus, which Tsai ing has consistently not done, uh, much to China's chagrin, but much to the support of um, most people here in Taiwan. Um, but, but even if President Tsai was to suddenly say she supports one China and she supports 1992 consensus, however unlikely that is, then we still get into the debate over the name of the Taiwan delegation at the WHA and what, what they would be there as. So if, if China insists on uh, Taiwan being called Chinese Taipei or some other name that the Thai government finds unacceptable, uh, then the other precursors become irrelevant. So if she, if she was to suddenly support the 92 consensus but say, I'm not going to go as Chinese Taipei, then we're, we're, we're not going to see Taiwan at the WHA because China will oppose. Of course, the invitation is late this year. They don't know if they're not going to get it or not. It could come. Last year's invitation was late, apparently. The government admitted that we got the invitation late. Mm. They put a cheap stamp on it. <laughs> cheap buggers, eh? You know, they could have taken it to the post office. No, they licked a tuppenny stamp and put it on it. And it Insult got it late. to injury right it there. It got it late. Anyway, the other problem with last year's invitation was that it contained an unexpected reference to United Nations Resolution 2758, oh, which yeah. was passed in October the 25th of 1971, which recognises the People's Republic of China as the only legitimate representative of China to the United Nations. Ergo, they didn't want Taiwan to participate as an observer of the WHA. Just a little knife in the ribs based right on there. this. Just well, again, that goes to, that goes ribs. to this being a very multi-layered problem. So, accepting one China, ninety-two consensus, the name of the delegation, and if getting a letter like this would be considered so uh, disrespectful to Taiwan, well, understandably, why would they go? Or there'd be a lot of public uh, support probably for not attending if the organization is going to treat Taiwan so shabbily. But you digress because they are going to attend. The health minister, Chen Shijong, has said, we're going anyway, regardless, we get a nice invitation, we're going to gate-crash the party. Well, that, that's the model that Taiwan has used at other international forums, such as the, the ICAO last year, the International Civil Aviation Organization meeting, where, where Taiwan would rent a room uh, very close proximity to the main, main events and, and have its own uh, meetings with uh, other delegates. Uh, some might say, though, that's, that's the pity party, right, where people are going to come to Taiwan, pat them on the back and say, sorry, you can't be in the main room with the adults. So they just need to, like, you know, bring a barbecue, bring a couple beers. They could make it a more happening thing. It's in Switzerland. Yeah. Fondue. There we go. That's how you keep it fun. Uh, Ting, listening to all this, watching this uh, unfold, what do you think is the path forward for Taiwan? So I remember when the um, WHA invitation and attendance first, uh, you know, what the first year that that happened, I think there was um, a lot of people saw that as a victory on Taiwan's part. 
um, I think what um, what I thought at the time was, well, this is sort of an invitation at the you know allowed by China, right? So it's almost like a well, if you know any year that we are not happy with you, we're just going to pull it back. And you know, I think it creates a dangerous precedent where Taiwan's international participation is basically you know hinges on the approval of China, right? And that. You know, I think that's basically what Hong Kong has, right? If China says, okay, well, we can have a Hong Kong delegate, then Hong Kong's going to have a delegate. If Hong Kong, if China says Hong Kong's not going to have a delegate, that's what goes, right? And so, you know, I think um, I, I'm not sure if China is really going to flex their muscles on this issue in particular, um, since it has been Taiwan has been attending for you know the last several years. And you know, I think it, I would be rather surprised to see if you know China does come out and say, you know, you do have to accept these terms um, for us to, you know, extend this invitation to you. On the other hand, you know, China, you know, I could imagine, you know, people in, in Beijing do feel that yes, like, Thai steps, you know, in the wrong direction, right? And so, you know, it can't be business as usual. We have to step in, in the appropriate. We have to have an appropriate response. In order to show them, yes, we are. You know, this is this is not business as usual during the Ma administration. I think I think it will be a pretty big deal if um, there's no invitation and China, you know, declares that yes, um, it is because we do not want Taiwan there this year, um, in response to the, the results of the election and Thai's, uh, you know, China policies. All right. Very quickly before we hit the break, Gavin, there was a little bit. I don't more- know what color the invitation is. Well, that's important. Uh, crack reporter like you, hopefully you can get on that case. If it's got my name on it, I'll give you an invite, though. Okay, perfect. I'll put you on the guest list. I, I do appreciate it. I can, I can join the fondue party outside. They're going to let you into Switzerland, yeah? Yeah, because I can yodel. Yodel! Okay, uh, the five listeners we still had just turned off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very quickly, before we get to the break, though, uh, there was a little bit more news that came out of that Reuters interview with Ty, and it uh, actually related to Trump. It did. Now, depending where you read this piece of information and how worded this information is, where you read it, you might have read that Tsai Ing-wen said, yes, I'm expecting another phone call from Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You might have read, yes, I'll accept another phone call from Donald Trump. Or you might have simply read, if he rings, I'll pick the phone up. I have the exact quote in front of me. The exact quote is, We don't exclude the opportunity to call President Trump himself, but it depends on the needs of the situation and the U.S. government's consideration of regional affairs. Not not, not a, you know, very strong assertion that more calls are going to be ha- uh, happen, but uh, as Gavin said, that's sort of the impression you would get if you read the... Uh, coverage of it, and uh, as Ross pointed out... Uh, That's right, in the is... hours after, um, uh, as some of the listeners may have seen during the day here on Friday in Taipei, that uh, President Trump was asked about this on Thursday, Washington, D.C. time, and indicated that another phone call would probably be unlikely due to its impact on U.S.-China relations. So uh, we don't know if there will ever be another call between Tsai and He said and, he would have Trump. to check with Xi before he did such a thing. Uh, well, again, the, the, the key point is that uh, Trump is, is setting out uh, the space and, and the space for Taiwan and the space for China, obviously the space for China uh, at least today, based, based on Trump's responses, the space for China is larger. Today, he's setting it out. Of course, next week it could all change because basically he says a lot of things that he doesn't actually stick to. 
All right, and uh, on that note, we'll uh, leave Gavin's skepticism of Trump's words behind and move into the break. When we return, we'll be discussing Taiwan's latest efforts to curb drunk driving, and we'll talk about Taiwan's most excellent food scare ever. Huh? Huh? All that more. Cracking, Keith. What a cracking joke. Yeah, that's what I thought. You that's really what I scrambled thought. that sentence, didn't you? I certainly did. I, I did a shell of a job. I think we need to go to the break before we eat the eggs. That was pretty crap, actually. <laughs> 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 All right. Anyway, on that note, bye. We'll be back soon. <laughs> Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, and Che Ting Ye. Some take their eggs sunny side up, some take them over easy, some take them with a hearty dollop of ketchup. I like them soft-boiled with soldiers. There we go. There's, there's lots of uh, ways to prepare your morning. How do you like your eggs, Ross? Uh, well, as a vegan, I usually don't eat eggs. So. <laughs> Is this a killjoy? What a killjoy! <laughs> well... Ross's comments notwithstanding, uh, there are plenty of different ways to prepare your morning eggs. Uh, this week, though, we found out that many eggs here in Taiwan may have come with an extra serving of dioxin. Perhaps not even vegan dioxin. Uh, even more horrifying. Uh, that yummy, yummy industrial carcinogen dioxin, Gavin. Yeah, this was started off with many eggs. Well, it started off last week, of course, with maybe it's all the eggs. Then it turned into many eggs. Then it turned into large numbers of eggs. You're saying that like it's a bad thing. It's a good thing that it went from all the eggs then to it, probably then just it a few. Then it turned into like, we think the contaminated eggs were for the three farms. Mm-hmm. Then on Wednesday of this week, whoa, the contaminated eggs from one, one farm in Zhanghua County. So mm-hmm. the number of actually contaminated eggs went down. Mm-hmm. The scare sort of dissipated over a while because... Not all the eggs were tainted, so to speak. Hey, but still, somebody may have... I mean, were the eggs actually released into the supermarkets? Do we know that? No, they were sold to retailers. Mm-hmm. But there is there was concern that most large numbers of the eggs were eaten, of uh-huh. course. You know. What an issue, like you said, Keith, there was contained... These eggs from one farm, they've proven now, contained unsafe levels of dioxins, basically. Hong Chang Farm The Hong Chang Farm County. in Zhanghua County. Now, basically, the, the, the poor three farms, of course... The other two farms that were innocent got in a bit of trouble because they, of course, they were banned from supplying eggs. Mm-hmm. The current farm is now going to have all its chickens killed, forty-two thousand of all, them, all its eggs destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that. Well, there is an investigation going on as about how the dioxins got in the eggs, and apparently authorities are saying that we're looking at the chicken feed. Mm-hmm. We think that the chickens might have eaten something that was tainted with dioxins, and then of course it got into the embryos, came out as eggs. And then you fried them and you got cancer. Right. That, so, that's just being really pessimistic about the whole That would thing. be the pessimistic thing, yeah. So uh, if listeners are like me and had to Google dioxin, dioxin is a broad 
range of carcinogenic chemicals. There's a number of ways uh, that dioxin can be introduced. Uh, there's They can be introduced through various industrial processes. They could even be in, in, introduced through volcanoes. Uh, in this case, what uh, folks are talking about is... Hey, I, I read that on Google. I found hey, it on Google. Yangmingshan's a volcano. There we go. That could be the culprit. Uh, what authorities are actually looking at here, though, is uh, potentially the burning of trash is one way that dioxin can be introduced. And uh, I I think what they're talking about is perhaps it got into the chicken feed somehow. Yeah, there there was obviously some controversy about the ownership of the farm in question. Mm -hmm. Apparently farm ownership changed. So the the mistake could have happened during the transfer of ownership of the farm. So the the current operator of the farm is saying, oh, it's not my fault. It was the previous operator. You've hit that nail on the head, Ross. Well, uh, it's like that when I got here. This goes to the same issue that comes up with um, all the previous tainted food scandals in recent years, which uh, is not, it's not just the commercial operator and their adherence to laws and regulations, but also the role of, of the regulatory agencies uh, that are supposed to be doing inspections and, and certifications, et cetera, of uh, operators within the food supply chain. And inevitably, we're, we're probably going to find the same thing, that, that on both sides, the, the operator cutting corners, not following regulations, and the regulators not doing their jobs thoroughly. But as a conservative, wouldn't you be somebody who is against the heavy yoke of overregulation? Well, that, 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 that's, that's... You're just going to blow by that one? You're just going to blow right past? Well, I was trying to keep a, a, a straight face with your, your excellent uh, egg I think you joke, po- I think you poached but, him. <laughs> well, uh, and, and, and as the listeners can, can tell, Gavin brought his sunny side to, to the show. There today. we go. That, um, that was one. That was one. Let's move on now very quickly. Taiwan's roads are crazy enough in the best of circumstances, but add inebriated drivers to the mix, and you've got a recipe that could quickly lead to tragedy. The numbers reflect that. According to official statistics, a total of 142 people died as a result of drunk driving-related accidents in 2015 alone. Now, a new draft law is aiming to increase penalties for DUI, and in cases of repeated offenses... They're planning to use the public shaming approach to discourage tipsy motorists and sloshed scooterists from getting behind the wheel. Or, you know, handlebars. Gavin? Yeah, this was, an, uh, this was a draft amendment to the Road Traffic Management and Penalty Act, which was passed its first reading on Wednesday of this week. And it set out that drivers convicted of DUI offences will be subject to a fine of between 30,000 and 90,000 NT. That simply raises the minimum amount from 15,000 NT. Mm-hmm. They went on to say that in cases of more than one DUI conviction in a five-year period, the maximum fine of 90,000 NT will be imposed and the drivers will be required to use a special license plate that identifies them as a repeat offender. Now, it went on to say that failure to apply for and use this special license plate will result in a three-month suspension of the offending driver's license in the first instance and complete revocation of the license if they still continue to refuse to comply and get the special license plate. Well, what if they drive a rental car, Gavin? Well, what if they don't have a license anyway because they've already had it taken away? There also was another element to this proposed legislation which would to, which would penalise the passenger. I saw yeah, that. Yeah. That's actually not new, believe it or not. This is, this is not new. This is not new. If you're in a car with someone that you know is inebriated or drunk and shouldn't be driving, you do face a fine. What if you're inebriated yourself, Gavin? 
someone that doesn't drink, Ross, I guess I wouldn't have got in a car with someone that did drink. It's a pretty low fine, though. Just point that out. It's I think actually, it's like the fine for that is six thousand to twelve thousand. But you should also have a big sticker put on your forehead that says, <laughs> "I'm stupid because I got I'm in a car with dumb. a drunk person." Basically, yeah. I'm a pretty dumb person. And also, one of these other interesting things is the bill seeks to amend the law pertaining to drivers who cause death or deterioration of patients in ambulances or emergency vehicles by failing to yield to them. So that's totally separate from the DUI. Yeah, issue. yeah. This is drivers convicted of this offence will be subject to a fine of between 6,000 and 90,000 NT and they'll lose their licenses. So just a little bit of context on this legislation. I think obviously the most interesting uh, thing here, at least to me, is this idea that shaming these drivers might deter them. Uh, But just a little bit of context. Back in 2013, there was Taiwan introduced what they called a zero-tolerance era on drunk driving, uh, and uh, officials at the time were touting their new uh, very low threshold for, you know, how high your blood alcohol had to be to get a ticket. Uh, They were touting that as the most strict system in the world. Then they went on to say that it was just as strict as Japan. So I don't know how you quite square those two statements. But uh, anyway, so this is something that Taiwan officials have been looking at for some time now. Uh, And to look at how drunk driving fatalities play out in practice, actually, the number of drunk drivers has been falling in the last uh, number of years. Uh, It fell... 35% uh, after 2013, it fell 31% after 2014, and it fell something like uh, 13% in 2015. So it's a a negative trend, which is a positive trend uh, that we're seeing right there. Uh, Ting, do you think that this uh, shaming method is uh, what we need here? Actually, I kind of see it um, not just as a shaming method, but also um, if I'm driving on the road, right, and then the car in front of me has this special license plate, that says, you know, he's a drunk, he's a repeated drunk driver. Yeah, I'm going to kind of stay away, right? Um, Maybe you should good, speed right? up and swerve around him. Ting and all the other well, drivers, or, which actually know, could create uh, dangerous traffic ideally, conditions. I, ideally, um, I would slow down, right, and, uh, you know, go somewhere else. Um, you know, this actually kind of reminds me of um, Megan's Law in the U.S., right, um, where um, you have registered sex offenders, right? Um, obviously, the two crimes are very different. Um, but, you know, the criticism for publicly shaming people is that, um, yeah, you kind of don't, you know, walk away from it, right? And, um, you know, for people who said, okay, you know what, I learned my lesson, I'm good, right? How do I get this special license plate taken away, right? So um, there should be some sort of way to do that. Um, again, and I feel like if you're a repeated offender and you're constantly getting yourself drunk and then driving, um, I don't really know if shaming you is actually going to work, um, since you're probably drunk a lot. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're really thinking through these things. Um, so, no, there was a yeah, case. you know, there was the, the whole public shaming thing only works if people, if you know, people around you are giving, you know people that you care about, right, or the society as a whole is really pointing fingers at you, giving you pressure, right? Um, and you're responding to that pressure. I don't know if that kind of works on this situation. Today. Yeah, I guess the public shaming could work, but then, of course, last week there was a case of a woman who, a couple of years ago, was involved in a, a traffic um, accident that resulted in a police officer losing part of one of his legs and mangling the other leg so he possibly would, technically wouldn't be able to work again. Um, she was a repeat offender. She didn't even have a license when she caused this horrific accident. It went to court. They sentenced her to prison. She asked, and she had the audacity to turn around to the judge and say, oh, can I simply pay a fine? 
Well, we do know that in, in criminal cases involving injury or even death in, in Taiwan, that your penalty or your incarceration can be reduced by paying monetary um, compensation to the to the victim or the family of a victim. So that maybe that is by tradition and practice um, something that occurs quite quite frequently here. Uh, but but there are other aspects to the to this discussion that I think transcend simply changing the law or, or this. I, frankly, I think rather odd proposal for the driver license. Uh, uh, Number plates. Well, I, I, as a comparison to, to the sex offender registries in the United States, obviously this could be online rather than um, being on somebody's license plate. It does introduce the, the dangerous road conditions that, that Ting alluded to. Let's get um, a big but, but scarlet the, D for the front of their chest. But, but also uh, public transportation options. So you know, We've been talking about more light rail. So it, to get people to take other w- modes of travel home after they've had something to drink, there needs to be public transportation options. Here's a novel idea. How about allowing ride-hailing apps instead of chasing them out? Oh. Uh, or what about serving uh, drinks on the light rail? That would get me to ride. Uh, well, that actually goes to another important point, Keith, which is uh, what are the penalties for establishments that uh, serve drinks to people who, who have had too much to drink but, but continue to hand them drinks? Um, that, that's another area that might require additional enforcement. What's, that in, what's it in the States? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. That, that, that seems to disappoint you, Gavin, that we should no, no, penalize establishment. What is it in the States? If you own a bar in America and you serve a drink and you get someone completely drunk and they drive home and kill someone, is the establishment in trouble? Legally? There are there are legal consequences for that if it, if it could be proven. I think yes. It probably varies by the state, though. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah. this would be a state law issue, but but uh, yes, there, there are legal consequences for a server who continues to give drinks to somebody who's clearly inebriated. Right. Uh, but it could be both civil and criminal. Ting, I'm going to give you the closing thoughts on this. I mean, what what, what are your thoughts on the severity of the drunk driving problem in Taiwan. I mean, you're, you're somebody who's lived in the U.S. Uh, and uh, Taiwan. Do you have any perspective on that? Is there is there a cultural element there, or is is it really a, quite a similar issue in the two countries? Um, unfortunately, I haven't had a run-in with <clears throat> a drunk driver or haven't had an accident. Um, but just from kind of personal observation, I mean, Taiwan is much more crowded than the U.S., right? And as we have been talking about with the infrastructure plan, public transportation isn't as advanced as it is, say, in Japan, right, with the same sort of similar comparable densities. And so you have a lot of people on the roads, um, you know, especially with smaller, you know, older, you know, less plate, like less planned out, you know, graded um, you know, cityscapes. And I think, yeah, I think it is more of an issue just because of that that setup, right? If somebody, if you have drunk drivers on the road, I just think that the um, probability of something, of an accident happening is much higher in Taiwan than it is in the U.S. Actually, just a final point. Um, there is uh, something in the United States. Um, I think there's a new technology called a textilizer. Um, huh. It's basically like the breathalyzer, but law enforcement will now be able to see your phone to see, you know, pre-accident to see if you were actually using your phone. Next to, you know, after drunk driving, yeah, this is going to be the next frontier, I'm sure, in Taiwan very soon. All right. All of our driving listeners right now, stay sharp, stay focused, get home safe. And that just about does it for the broadcast portion of the show. But as always, we have a bonus podcast story for our podcast listeners today. Gavin, what do you got for us? Yeah, apparently Taiwan is perceived as the third safest city among 378 cities in the world. This year, in fact. 
And apparently it's Taiwan sits behind Abu Dhabi in first place and Munich in Germany in second place. That according to the Crime Index 2017, which is compiled by Numbio.com. Numbio. Ooh, for some reason that doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence, that name Numbio. No, apparently the index is based on a surveys of visitors to the website. Ooh, there we go. <laughs> Internet users. People who sit down and use the interweb doing surveys. Anyway... It describes Self-selected. It. <laughs> yeah, what were they looking at before they did the survey? <clears throat> yeah, mm. <clears throat> yeah. Now, the company describes itself as the world's largest database of user-contributed data about cities and countries worldwide. Okay. There you go. If anyone's interested, and if anyone's still listening, the crime index for Taipei for earlier this year stood at 15.76. What does that mean? A- Abu Dhabi stood at 15.51, while Munich in Germany stood at 15.72. Now, the crime index is an estimation of the overall level of crime in any given city. Mm-hmm. Now, Numbio considers crime <laughs> levels lower than 20 as very low, between 20 and 40 as being low, between 40 and 60 as being moderate, between 60 and 80 as being high, and crime levels higher than 80, well, I guess you're living in El Salvador. Mm. Sorry if mm. I've offended anyone from El Salvador, but there you go. Our apologies. So Taiwan, of course, is lower than 20 with 15.76. All right, so basically I guess the headline here is, according to Numbio, Taiwan is among these, uh, Taipei excuse me, is among the safest cities in the world, uh, Ting, you, uh, as, as we've mentioned already on the program, you have lived in Taiwan and Taipei and a number of cities around the world. Uh, does this comparison sound about right to you? It's really hard to say. I mean, I, I think with cities, I mean, there's always, you know, if you want to be even more granular, there are pockets and neighborhoods where it's safer and where it's not safe, right? Um, really? Yeah. Well- well, I think, really? well, I think generally okay, those okay. of us who live in Taipei feel that uh, you're, you're safe from street crime, right? The, 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 you're unlikely to be mugged. You're not likely to be mugged going to the, the grocery shop. That's right. I and, and, can't and, think of a district uh, in Taipei that I'd be afraid I do, of walking I have, at night. Okay, I, I will say I have not been mugged in Taipei, although I have been mugged in New York. Right. There you go. That sounds about right. That accords with Numbio's uh, hey, hypothesis. You've just made Ross real proud. Yeah. Real proud. Well, well, talking about his home city. Well, cr- crime has been falling. In Was most, it Ross? Most most major cities in the United States as well. Uh, but 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 again, uh, and those of us who are who are expatriates, which includes all of us, uh, I think we would agree that generally we, we feel safe walking around Taipei um, late at night, um, and that's one of the reasons why there is a perception that that Taipei is is generally a, a safe safe place. Uh, it seems like from this conversation, there's a greater danger of eating eggs with dioxin or uh, being hit by a drunk driver in Taiwan, driver. yeah, than or, being mugged. Or possibly being a lawmaker. Being hit by thrown coffee, yeah. yes. Well, one of them right. got their ribs broken last, uh, last that was, Wednesday. That was the Italian magistrate. Yeah, Italian magistrate got his... two fractured ribs. By, yeah. by, the, by the pension reform yeah. opponents. Yeah, yeah. The guy's uh, got a mean left hook, apparently. Uh, one of those protesters. But, but, but there, are, there is crime here. There, there are home break-ins in, in Taipei. There, That's actually there a pretty is, big issue. Yeah. Uh, they actually come looking for gold. Believe it or not, really? I went, my, many years ago, my neighbour downstairs got got burglarised. Yeah, mm-hmm. now burglarised it happens, but it's pretty rare mm-hmm. still compared with where we come from. Yeah, right. I mean San Francisco, London, yeah. and New York. To be yeah? fair, burglary yeah. is very low here. Yeah. What they do is the police came round, and of course the police came up to our floor, asked if we've seen anything, and one of the policemen was a bit chatty, and he explained that yeah, what they do is they break in, they break into the apartments. And with they have they have metal detectors mm. and gold, th- so they can go through the whole. They don't actually rummage through all the drawers and the cupboards. They go through the place in a metal detector. 
tech savvy burglars to find the gold and whatever else you've got in the house and they take it and they leave uh, but they're, they're actually though in, in all seriousness there is one disturbing uh, violent crime trend we've seen in Taiwan in the last few years which are, are random acts of violence um, committed by deranged people um, we've seen that on the MRT and we've seen that um, very frightening actually we've seen that at public schools a number of times still though to, to just keep that in perspective in a you know in international comparison I don't think it compares to the level of public acts of violence that are committed in many other countries well we are fortunate um, from here in Taiwan here in Taiwan just like a number the scale of other of countries it is limited by the news. another of another of a number of other countries in Asia that, that there are extremely restrictive gun ownership right. laws and so there should be nobody needs a gun unless you're in the armed forces or in the security services to just take a little bit of an editorial line on that, yeah. But uh, just to wrap up the conversation, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I've lived outside of Taipei, not too far. I've I've lived in various parts of New Taipei City, and I remember uh, Sanchong in particular. When I told my Taiwanese friends that I was moving to Sanchong, uh, a lot of them said, "Hey, hey, hey, be careful! That's where all the that's, gangsters live. That's where all the bodies are buried." Apparently, <laughs> and that, but then I had my Sanchong friends tell me, "No, no, 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 no! That's that's a that's a stereotype from twenty years ago. All the, the gangsters moved away many years." This, so. all goes, this this goes back to, of course, when New Taipei City was Taipei County, and Taipei County was like the New Jersey. Wait, wait, you usually sorry, – sorry, I'm just going to have to clarify here because usually you want to live where the gangsters are because that's actually the safest neighborhood because no one's going to do any, any – you know, no one's going to break into your home on a street that's, where gangsters live. That's kind of a good point. I mean the gangsters are not necessarily unfriendly people here in Taiwan. It's but, but, actually but kind of the gangster wannabes that you got to watch out for. Right. They're not looking to commit random street crime, right? Exactly. You know, so that's exactly. a safe place to live. All right, closing things out right there. That's it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Time on this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places as well. You know where to look. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. I'm going to go for some eggs now. Uh, careful. Careful. Joined us sometimes by Chating Ye. Uh, don't drink and drive. Words to live by. And joined as quite often by Ross Feingold. Uh, happy Labor Day to those celebrating the holiday. There we go. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. I could almost use what you just said in the outro and then you ruined it with the F-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you just beep it? <laughs> I don't think I can.